0: Good morning again, everyone. It's a very complicated passage, so we're going to dive right in, but definitely we would need to pray before we do so, so would you pray with me? Dear Father, I pray that you would guide the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and let them be pleasing to you and let them be encouraging and challenging and instrumental in all of our lives as we seek to figure out ultimate reality, what life is all about, what life will be like at the end. We pray that you would instruct us, you would guide us, and that most of all, we would see Jesus, we would see his gospel. We pray that we would encounter that, meditate upon it, and be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1930, a painter, his name was Elias Martinez, drew a very standard, very rather unremarkable picture of Jesus with a crown of thorns, and it was entitled... Ecce Homo, which is Behold That Man. And it's a very common name for Catholic paintings of Jesus with the crown of thorns. As a painting, it's very standard, typical of many Catholic paintings, and it was in a very typical church in Spain. But it deteriorated over the years, and in 2012, the church decided that it was time to renovate the painting and to restore it. But when the restoration was unveiled, everyone immediately thought that the painting had been vandalized. If you've seen the episode of Seinfeld when uh, George Costanza accidentally removes his boss from the painting and then tries to put it back in and it looks airbrushed, that's what Jesus looked like. It was ridiculous. This is one of the times where I wish we did overhead because you could see how preposterous this restoration was. But unfortunately, it wasn't vandalized. It was restored by an elderly lady in the congregation who in her 80s took up a hobby of restoring paintings. And so the classic painting now resembled, according to professional art critics, a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey in a tunic. And the restored version began to be dubbed Eke Mono, Behold That Monkey. So this poor woman was in her 80s, and you can imagine how she felt afterwards, and the uh, internet immediately mocked the new painting, and Mona Lisa was redone in this new way. The Campbell's, Campbell's suit cans were redone in the new way. People dressed up for Halloween as this Mono, the Behold the Monkey. Well, life often resembles that painting, doesn't it? Where we try to do something good, we try to do something beneficial, something benevolent, and our, our efforts just don't come out quite right. Maybe you prepare yourself for a long time, for a career, and you find yourself decades later bored to tears. It's no longer fulfilling. It's not what you thought it would be. You began a a romantic interest and you fall madly in love and then it begins to unravel and fall apart and now is a very painful relationship in your life. You try on a new path of spirituality that looks Promising. This looks like the answer, and then you end up feeling dispirited and disappointed afterwards. It's not what I had hoped. Or I don't know, maybe an election didn't go the way that maybe you thought, and now the world is coming to an end. Much of life is spent dealing with these gaps in our lives, looking for redemption, looking for resurrection in our disappointments, in our aging bodies, in the way that our nation or our world appears to be going, looking for resurrection in our boring careers. There's this distance between expectation and experienced reality. And the question that we're all dealing with this morning is how do we do that? How do we bridge that distance? What should be in there? Well, chapter 15 is the most thorough reflection that we have on the resurrection. And it comes at the very tail end of this first letter to the Corinthians. It's the capstone. It's the finale of this letter helping the Corinthians deal with this gap between what began to happen in their church when the gospel took root and now what they're experiencing, divisions and strife and competition. And there's this great Difference. this great distance between expectation and reality. And Paul begins to speak into this reality, to bridge that distance with the resurrection, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that somehow that's the answer, that's the bridge. Now we tend to think of resurrection in terms of resurrection from the dead. But if you notice in verse 42, it was resurrection of the dead. It means just standing up. Resurrection means getting up or rising. And the Corinthians would have thought of dead people in terms of corpses. If you walked around Corinth, there was likely to be a corpse on the corner. That's how they thought of death and how they experienced death. There was corpses everywhere. And so they would have thought of the resurrection of the dead as the rising of the corpses, or the dawn of the dead, or maybe even better, the walking dead. This is how they would have thought about resurrection, like we think of zombies. It's kind of odd and scary, not appealing, but why would I want to live like that? Why would I want that as my final existence, Paul? So he has to correct them, and he has to tell them what reality is going to be like in the resurrected experience and the resurrected life. And most of us most of us need Paul to correct our understanding of it because maybe it's not zombies, but maybe it's precious moments. You know the little porcelain things? It's clouds and and harps and dolls. That's how we think of it. It's very saccharine and we how we think about heaven. And you know, this is one of the favorite parts of my week and I have to be here. And I enjoy this because I get to show up and I get to see all of you guys, it's, it's a, a wonderful experience, but I don't want to be in church for the rest of my life. I don't want to be in church for eternity. That seems boring. And probably for you, that's like, I can't imagine just being in a worship service for all of eternity. That's boring. So Paul communicates something that would be corrective for the Corinthians and also corrective for us, and something totally different. He says in verse 37, When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body, not all flesh the same. People have one kind of flesh and animals another, and the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. Then the sun has one kind of splendor and the moon another, and the stars, another, and the stars differ from star in splendor. Well, that is very complicated language. But what Paul is trying to do is to call us back to the creation story. It's a callback in the Bible to Genesis one, two, and three, when God creates the world and He launches the stars and He creates the galaxies and animals and plant life and humanity. He creates a spatial. Existence, full of things that reflect God's being and God's character. Each thing with purpose that is suited to what it is made for and working towards a world full of beauty and delight. And Paul's argument seems to be here, if God could create a cosmos like that, that is so magnificent, couldn't we expect that he would create a suitable Realm and a suitable body for our eternal existence to come. The God who made the universe can make a heavenly existence that's much more than zombies and much more than clouds and interminable church meetings. And here's the point trust Him, trust Him with your future existence. We have all sorts of questions about the resurrection and what it will be like to live with God. What about our loved ones? What about people that don't know God? What about my past and my scars and my wounds? Will I remember them? What about marriage? What will happen to my spouse? All of these questions, some of them show up in Scripture. And what Paul is saying is trust Him, that God loves you and He knows you And He created you and therefore He is intimately aware of all of your desires and all of your needs and that the promise is that the expectations that you might have will be far exceeded. That the resurrection will finally bridge that distance between expectation and reality. So two things, imagine imagine what you would want to be similar to in your earthly experience, and amplify that. Turn it up to 11. And imagine what you would want to be different from your earthly experience, and imagine all of that diminished completely. And then imagine how that would change the way that you go about life today and tomorrow and this week. In the midst of our deepest questions about life, our despair about what is going on in the world, we always go back to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That is the bridge. That is the only hope between expectation and reality. Now, what is similar? If we are to imagine what is similar, but we want to amplify it, we want to turn it to 11, verse 53. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, mortal with immortality, And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Change and continuity. The mortal will be clothed with immortality, with what we don't have now, life eternal. But we will bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus That is, we are not just departed spirits floating around, but we are embodied people, even in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus' resurrection is the blueprint for the coming existence. And how was He resurrected? As a spirit? As a ghost? As a zombie? No, He was resurrected in His person, in a body, a human being clothed in immortality. We see that Jesus ate and he drank and he got tired and he recognized his friends and his friends recognized him, although something was different. He still bore, in fact, the scars of his resurrection. Though he is clothed with immortality, there is continuity with his human embodied earthly experience. And the point is, is that I will be me and you will be you. And I will have my body, and you will have your body. And we will live and operate in a physical space. As the hymn that we sang, heaven comes down. The earth, the heavenly city comes down to earth, and it exists in a purified earth. So imagine with me, everything that we love, that we get a taste of, but we can't fully experience because we only live a certain number of decades. Imagine learning for eternity. Imagine being able to pursue your curiosity about how things work and what the universe is like for all eternity. Imagine unhindered communication and relationships with one another. Imagine creating things and working on them and developing them. Now, all of these things continue unhindered by sin. And unhindered by the march of time and the aging of our bodies and the aging of our mind. Think about this. Why is the universe so big? Why are there billions upon billions of galaxies with billions upon billions of stars within them? It is because God is so creatively powerful, and that we will have an eternity to think about those things, to ponder them, maybe to visit them. Who knows? But imagine having an eternity to wrap your mind around the greatness of our spatial existence, and maybe God Himself is so complex and so mysterious because He knows that we have an eternity to ponder Him and to grow in relationship with Him that will never plumb the depths of His complexity and His beauty. Beauty. So there is continuity. Imagine what you want to continue and amplify it, but there's also change. What is different about the coming time? Verse 35, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown Is imperishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. It is raised as a spiritual body. Do you see change or continuity and also change? Now we know a little bit more about botany than Paul did. We know that seeds don't actually die, but they actually are transformed, they become something else. They blossom, they're transformed, but Paul's point is still apt. When a, a woman gets pregnant in the early stages of the pregnancy, if you look in utero, you all you see is a collection of cells. It doesn't look like a baby. It doesn't look like a human being. But these cells are potent with life, with DNA. Everything that will become that child that is born is present in those cells that are being activated and dividing and growing. And it's a beautiful process. If you could look and see the two, then the four, then the eight, it's stunning. But you don't want to give birth to just a collection of cells. You want to give birth to a full developed infant, a fully formed human. But there's continuity there between those cells that are potential, are full of potential with DNA, but that embryo goes, grows to a baby and then to an adult. We want the embryo to grow and to develop into a finished product. Well, that's what the resurrection is and does. Mortality to immortality. Dishonor to glory. Weakness to power. Perishable to imperishable. All of these things that we know as limitations to our present existence will be eradicated and erased forever. As our bodies age, our knees ache, our bones weaken, our teeth loosen, our skin sags, our ears grow, and very unfortunately for me, our noses continue to grow for all of our lives But everything about the rest of our body is getting smaller and, you know, droopier. We begin to fall apart. And with all of our modern technology, we cannot change that. We can slow it down, we can alter it a little bit, but all of us will reach the point where our bodies cease working. So imagine with me a body, a physical body that doesn't age, that's not in slow decline, that's impervious to aging. Now, I know this is difficult stuff to believe, but this is what the Bible teaches, and this is what Jesus taught. And so we have to wrestle with, if we disbelieve this resurrection and this future existence, then we all are saying that what Jesus is saying is incorrect. And we, you can say that, but we have to do business with Him. This is not something that we just made up. It is difficult to believe that it's true, but wouldn't it be cool if it was? Wouldn't it be cool if this is true? And don't we want to believe it? Don't we want something after this life of ceasing after things that we never seem to fully get? Doesn't that give us a sign that we were made for something else? If we have these desires, and this is what... C.S. Lewis said, if we find in ourselves desires for which we can find no satisfaction in this world, wouldn't it be reasonable to conclude that we were made for another world? Maybe you're not ready to believe that this morning, but think about it. Think about your life. Think about your hopes for the future. What if it was true? Well, how? How does this take place? And this is our last point. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. See, continuity and change. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 45, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man, was of the dust of the earth the second man is of heaven as was the earthly man so are those who are of the earth and as is the heavenly man so are those who are of heaven paul is contrasting here two different realities two different humanities two different regimes if you will in the first regime in the first humanity entropy rules and you can't get out of that You can't stop it. You can maybe slow it down for a time, but everything you touch, everything you see, is spiraling into disarray and spiraling into disintegration. But Jesus comes, and He lives under that regime, but through the power of His life and His death and His resurrection, He tears a hole in that regime a hole big enough that His Spirit can pour into and begin to unwind everything that is going wrong and everything that is sad and everything that is untrue. He can begin to not only slow down entropy, but turn it around and make it work backwards. He brings in a new humanity that is no longer plagued by fear and death and disintegration. And friends, this is what I want you to hear today. If you're if you haven't paid attention so far, I understand. I lose people sometimes. But I want you to hear this. Look at me and hear this. This is for you. What Paul is saying is for you. This is not some pie in the sky esoteric discussion. This is for you. And it's a promise. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Something has to be changed, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will not all sleep, but we will all Be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That is a promise. You will be changed in Christ. Remember Eke Homo or Eke Mano? It's really remarkable to see what happens when something beautiful ends up becoming repulsive. And what do we normally do? We hide it, we put it in a closet, we cover it up, something we're ashamed of. But something surprising happened when this painting was restored. In this small city of Borgia, Spain, 5,000 people lived there. And people started streaming in from all over Spain and all over the world to see this botched restoration. They began to see 5,000 people lived here. Nearly 100,000 visitors came to see this botched painting each and every day. It literally resurrected the local economy. Nearby vineyards began splashing this grotesque picture of Jesus on their wine labels. The image got stamped on the town's lottery ticket. There's an ongoing competition of young artists judged by this restorer who did such a bad job, of who paint their own eke homo portraits. And there's an opera in the works about this whole incident, the story about how this woman ruined a fresco but saved the town. How remarkable. That a picture of Jesus disfigured and repulsive a mockery of everything that we find good and beautiful about art would lead to a renewal of this town. And isn't that the gospel? That Jesus, the perfect man, the Son of God, comes and He is rejected and He is disfigured and He is beaten and He is crucified to save the world so that all that is grotesque and twisted And just plain rundown about your life can be resurrected and renewed and begin again. And everything that is wrong about our world, that is sad and untrue and divisive and ugly, will become no more. This isn't pie in the sky. This is the very heart of the gospel. This is Jesus. This is Christianity. Take hold of Him. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, what a remarkable number of verses, and I pray that we would understand them better having been here this morning, but not simply understand them, but to contemplate them, to be moved by them, to be invigorated by them, to be changed by them, and to live with a growing hope about the future, to not be so easily thrown off by the happenings in our world and our lives, by the setbacks by the failures, but to remember each time we fall down that we can be lifted up, that you lifted your son Jesus up as an example of what you will do finally for all of us who look to you, that you will lift us up, that we will be resurrected to new life forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.